Welcome to A Life Lived Backwards, One Man's Life, the accompanying podcast to Larry Rutman's memoir, A Life Lived Backwards, an existential triad of friendship, inquisitiveness, and maturation. Hi there, I'm Jordan Rich with a pretty easy task and a fun one at that. I pose questions to Larry and with that razor sharp memory of his and a great talent for storytelling, well, you just have to settle back and enjoy the ride. Larry, the best place to start is with the title, A Life Lived Backwards. It's a long life and it's got a lot of life in it. (laughs) Tell me your thoughts. Why did you pick that title? Well, because I think I matured late in life. I mean, I wouldn't say that I was totally immature because I had a successful law practice for a long time, starting in 1958, and really not ending yet, but I very rarely get into a legal matter these days. But I have gotten into a couple in the, the last few years. I'm still interested in that. But mainly, um, mainly I'm interested in writing at the present time, and that really is uh, something that— uh, takes up a lot of my time, and I love doing it, and I never thought I would do it. So that um, I think uh, hmm. it was the question, what about a life lived backwards? Yeah, well, I think you're you're already laying out some great groundwork. First of all, the writing didn't start until when? I'd say at age 70 or a little before, maybe in 2000 or maybe in 1998, because what happened is that um, I'm, I've always been interested in history, And um, what happened is that um, I went over to hear a lecture in Cambridge, Massachusetts, uh, the Palace of Learning around. (laughs) And um, what happened is uh, that uh, a lady was giving a talk about Cambridge history and how she did it by interviewing people. And as I was driving home, there's a place across from the Kehillath Israel Temple where I was bar mitzvahed, mm-hmm. a little store run by a lady by the name of Ethel Weiss. She's gone now. She died, I think, at 101. I know the lady. Uh, 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 this is so exciting to talk to you about her, but go ahead. Go ahead. Well, I mean, I first knew Ethel Weiss when I was like uh, in the sixth grade in, I don't know, 1940 or something like that, when I used to go in there and buy penny candy. And I last knew her in the year that she died when... I was already into my 80s, I guess. And she was a remarkable woman who really cared about the kids. You know, I mean, what could she make in a store that sold penny candy and stuff like that? Um, So that um, her real reason for being, so to speak, was how she loved those kids. And they all came in there from the devotion school, which is right next door. And it's a famous it, yeah, now called something else, but that's another story. But it was named after Edward Devotion, who lived way back in the 17th century. Mm-hmm. And a little house of his in front of the school is still extant, and it's the home of the Brookline Historical Society. Anyway, Ethel became like an educator at Devotion, even though she was not on the staff, not paid by the town or anything like that. She used to put up stuff on the walls about how to be a good person she would uh, always um, uh, instruct the kids about honesty and being good to people, as we were talking before about helping people that needed help. So that um, as I drove by, I said, mm-hmm. boy, if I'm going to be an oral historian or I'm going to look into this stuff, who would be the first person I'd want to interview? How about <laughs> Ethel Weiss? So I stopped the car and I, I went across the street and, you know, we'd always greet each other with a warm greeting, a hug or something like that. And I proposed to her that I'd like to interview you, Ethel, maybe in the next couple of days. And she said, okay, that's fine. And uh, we did. And um, 
One thing led to another. First, I started interviewing other people. I can tell you about them. And uh, next thing I knew, I was uh, not only having a TV program on local access TV, interviewing all these people from Brookline, famous and not, and um, not so famous, but but Brookline is a place that has a lot of well-known people and talented people. And uh, somebody said, why don't you put this in the local paper? So I began to write articles in the local paper. And the next thing was the people said, you know, those are interesting articles. You ought to put it in a book. And, you know, <laughs> I always thought, Jordan, that I could never write a book. Boy, an author. I mean, you know, people used to say your legal briefs are nice. They're clear. They're not obfuscatory, to use that word. Yes. But um, but I had never thought of writing. I thought of an author as somebody special. Turns out that a dummy like me can write. Uh, well, well, let me let me just interject here. As an attorney, a well-trained attorney, though that that's a very important skill set to be able to write clearly and effectively. So, I mean, I've read everything you've written, and and your prose is very well laid out. I mean, that has to be a uh, a help. But it's more than that. It's creative. It's storytelling. It's Wanting to share with people, isn't it? it? Wanting to share is a big part of it, and um, I think that I think the talent is a big part of it. I didn't know that I had that talent. I mean, I don't think I'm a great writer, but I, I think some of the words you just used are accurate. Uh, and um, that um, I try to be clear, and I try to be natural, and I try not to be. I try to write like I might speak. So that I, so that the tone of what I write goes directly to people, that they understand, that they feel as though they're talking to me, that we're together, or what if I'm interviewing somebody else, that they're looking over my shoulder and they're part of the conversation, a silent part of the conversation. Well, it's unlike some authors, uh, novelists, or writers, you're so enamored with the subject matter. It's baseball. It's the history of Jews in baseball. It's it's the city of Brookline, which has a great oral and written history that you just added to. So it's it's you have a passion for what you're writing about to begin with. Oh, I do. Well, I'm you know part of the part of the title of the memoir that I'm now working on is the the three facets that I think describe my persona, if you will, uh, our friendship, inquisitiveness, and uh, maturation. Um, inquisitiveness, you know, I used to get on somebody's blanket when I was two years old at Revere Beach, and uh, my parents would come looking for me, and I'd keep asking the people why. That was the big word in my vocabulary. Um, and I think that I've always been inquisitive. And, uh, you know, people say to me all the time, well, you're like a uh, Renaissance man. And I don't think that's accurate, uh, Jordan. Um, I am inquisitive about a lot of subjects. And I know a little, uh, un peu, I think as the French <laughs> say, about a lot of things. But I'm not, I'm more of a dilettante than a, uh, than a, uh, than a Renaissance man on a scale of from dilettante to renaissance man, I'd be way over. Uh, Don't sell yourself too short, my friend. But I will say this, and there's not any new ground being broken here. The interest in things, the curiosity in life and in people and in history, um, it's scientifically assessed and proven that that is what keeps people vibrant and and excited and energized and healthy, quite frankly. You're 90 as we record this. 
no one would ever take you for that, but it's also just the output, the creative output. Does that enter into your your sense of well-being to be this creative, oh, to yeah. be this curious? Yeah, I don't think I'd be alive if I wasn't uh, creative like that. It, it, it gives me a reason for living. I don't look up, you know, I know that at 90, you're nearing the end of your life. Could be any time. Um, sure, I'd like to live to 100 if I stayed in one piece and could do what I'm doing now. Because, um, you know, if I when I sit down to write, I don't usually have writer's block. And I find that I can write pretty easily because, you know, I'm writing from the heart and I'm not I'm not trying to do something different than I really am. Mm -hmm. And um, so that uh, that makes it makes it easy. And I think it is life enhancing, life giving, you know. Well, you're you're an excellent listener. That's the first thing I'll say. Uh, You and I have had lots of conversations and, and interviews on air in the past. And you know, you you'd really do soak up what's coming at you, and then uh, you can process that, which is a dying art in this day and age. Uh, as you know, people are so quick to just move on and text and see you later. Uh, there's there's a there's an art to conversation, which is what we're we're doing right here. We're going to be talking in future podcast episodes uh, specifically about the meaning of friendship. When you've lived uh, a life well lived, in this case, a life lived backwards. You get to meet a lot of interesting people and befriend people you might not have ever thought you would. So we'll t- we'll do that. But let's talk briefly more uh, a bit more about the maturation part of that title. What does that mean to you, mature? Well, one way of describing it is that, um, like a lot of people, I've I was always sort of uh, hypochondriacal. Not I mean in a in a really uh, pathological way, but I would. I would spot something and I'd think to myself, oh, God, this is one th- something really bad. Right. Now, when I, I – for example, in the last couple of years, I, as you know, I had an event uh, totally unexpected of uh, melanoma on my forehead. You see it right here above, mm-hmm. my, above my left eye. Uh, invasive melanoma, which means that it had gotten below the surface and had to be excised uh, surgically. And um, fortunately, it turned out well that it hadn't gotten into my limb system and uh, that uh, they could get they got it out. Uh, I had a couple of operations and three, four incisions, and uh, that all worked out. I, I became very it, it became it was almost easy for me to to deal with it. My attitude was not hypochondriacal. Um, it was, uh, hey, look, I hope they can get it out and I hope I don't die. But if if this is the end, hey, what can you do? I mean, I lived a long life. I'm, I was 88 at the time, <laughs> on the cusp of 89. I said, you know, I haven't been, I haven't been exactly cheated, um, but, uh, you know, I'd like these guys to get it out. They did. Um, but I dealt with it in an entirely different way than I would have done 20 years earlier. And that signaled to me that I <laughs> had finally <laughs> grown up. Jordan. That's an interesting way to put put it. I think a lot of us are are still in that stage of denial, denial. But it's also a, a comfort level that you have with life, apparently. I mean, oh, well, yeah. Well, let me expand on, you know, sure. the, the question you asked. And that is that um, I think I used to um, – I think I've always given the impression of self-confidence. And I think that's what helped me as a lawyer particularly because – People would, you know, I would say, well, let me handle it and uh, don't worry about it. I know this is driving you crazy, but um, 
I'll straighten it out. We'll we'll get there. And you know, fortunately, I was a reasonably good lawyer, and I could settle their problems, and uh, that made them feel good, and I felt good about doing it. And I think I was a capable, competent attorney, and I think I cared about people. I wanted to make money, but I just wanted to have enough money so that I could be comfortable. I never really wanted to make trillions of dollars. I mean, my money was not on my on the top of my wish list by a long shot. So that, um, so that I, but I think that I was not as confident as I appeared. I would ask myself questions like many of us do. Should I say this to this person? And you know, like when Sumner Redstone called me on the phone about something because I did work for movie guys, mm-hmm. and uh, you know, he was a very uh, forceful individual. And I'm saying to myself afterwards, um, you know, did I handle that right? Did I do it okay? Uh, then uh, what happened is that um, as time went on, and I and my and I matured, for whatever reason, um, you know, if you live long enough, you're liable to get to that point. Um, what happened is that um, I really did develop self confidence that was real, where I didn't really, so to speak, care what people thought. I mean, I just wanted to be me. They don't like what I'm wearing, screw them. <laughs> and uh, they, they don't like what I'm saying, fuck them. Yep, you can say that. And, and you know something? Uh, I'm a, a tad younger than you. Well, a couple of decades at least, maybe three. But I'm starting to feel that way. I think that is a part of maturation when you get comfortable enough to say, what does it really matter what somebody else thinks? We're going to be dead. You know, I'll tell you something, Jordan. Um, I... First of all, you got to recognize that you're just a blip uh, in, in, you know, this. you live, you die, most people get forgotten. If you write a book like you just did, or I've written a couple, maybe people read that long after you're gone, fine. You're remembered by your family. But over the course of time, it fades into the background. And um, I believe that, um, I believe that uh, you... Uh, uh, it's wonderful when you reach that point in life where, if you will, you don't care because even though you do care, you're really being yourself. Mm. And when you're really yourself, they say old age is a drag, but I, I think I count my old age as the best part of my life. Why? Because I do what I want, say what I want, uh, write what I want, um, and uh, – I think uh, people looking at some of the things I say or do or write will say, hey, he's what a pain in the ass that guy is. And, uh, you know, he's uh, where does he get off saying those things? But I don't care. And there are going to be people who, like a lot of people, they'll say, Jesus, you know, I read your book about uh, Jews and baseball, and I love that. Well, you know, you can't please everybody. Not a, not at all. So let's talk now. Let's Let's move into friendship, okay? Let's talk about some of that because that's a great topic. In the story of your life that'll be part of your uh, memoir, Life Lived Backwards, you focus a lot on friendship, on relationships. And uh, let's start with the relationship you have with a beautiful lady who's in the waiting room as we record this with your wife of, what, 57 years, Lois? Yeah, 57 years, yeah. God bless you and muzzle tough to both of you. Talk a little bit about... That kind of friendship, first of all. Then we'll talk about some of the other uh, aspects of friendship. Um, well, I, I in the memoir, 
that I wrote um, that um, bears that title in part, The Life Lived Backwards. Uh, You know, many people start a memoir off, well, why did I write this memoir? And there is a section in that memoir, why did I write this Mm -hmm. memoir? And I think that's important. But I started it off with Lois, my wife. And and the reason I did is because, um, first of all, we have a very unusual relationship. It's not lovey-dovey and uh, we're running around uh, holding hands and with our arms around each other all the time. But I find that her presence is very comforting and very helpful because, as I said to you before, you come first and she comes second. She will say things to me that are hard to, <laughs> to, to take. But it doesn't matter because she'll, she, won't do, she won't do anything that is consonant with talking tough. She'll, the next thing I know, there's a candy bar that she brought home or something that I didn't expect that uh, she's giving me. Or when I was down with my uh, injury a couple of months ago when I fell on my knee— and broke some bones that fortunately weren't displaced so that I could make a full recovery. I had to stay in my bedroom for two months, I really, and they, mm. without bearing weight. Lois did a, an exceptional amount of things for me. Um, for example, that book I told you about, uh, Intimate Conversations, from my bed, with Lois going between my home and FedEx in Brookline, and this young woman at FedEx, I was able to assemble the parts of the book and the handwritten letters I had from five favorite famous composers saying how fortunate they felt to be interviewed by me, that it was a great experience. Handwritten, I thought, would be mm. very very uh, persuasive. But among the me and them, I was able, without leaving my bedroom, to send out the submission to the publisher mm-hmm. of this book. And without Lois, that would have been impossible. Without that young woman over at FedEx, it would have been impossible. And uh, and Lois did a thousand things for me. She brought me up my dinner every night. Um, she kept, she keeps a wonderful house. And um, she just uh, would... Uh, Help me walk to the bathroom and... Well, she's a beautiful lady. You guys have been married, as I say, 57 years. No children, but you have each other in this relationship that is obviously quite strong and quite healthy. Uh, and I'm in a similar boat. My wife will tell me things and she'll uh, lecture me on occasion and correct me. Most husbands are correctable. I, I, we, we can learn if taught, if patiently taught. But I, I'm thrilled to meet her and she's here and she's an absolute delight. This has been a life lived backwards, one man's life. The accompanying podcast to Larry Ruttman's memoir, A Life Lived Backwards, an existential triad of friendship, inquisitiveness, and maturation. You can subscribe and download this podcast, available on all podcast platforms. For information on Larry, his books, lectures, and much more, visit the website LarryRuttman.com. Also check out the extensive Larry Ruttman page on Wikipedia. This is Jordan Rich inviting you to join us again next time as Larry shares more stories about friendship, inquisitiveness, and maturation on A Life Lived Backwards, One Man's Life.